today we're going back into the archives. We're looking at a civil defence booklet from 1969, which was kindly sent to me by John, one of my patrons, and it's about fallout shelters in American schools. The booklet is called Civil Defence, A Vital Concern to PTA. PTA, of course, is the Parent Teacher Association. The booklet was created by the National Congress of Parents and Teachers and was done in cooperation with the Office of Civil Defence. So, as you can imagine, it's all about energy and action. It's all about spurring the parents to get involved, to badger the schools, to be pushy, to ask questions, to make a nuisance of yourself. Does my kid's school have a fallout shelter? What is its protection factor? Is it stopped? Who built it? What were the architect's fallout shelter credentials? Show me the blueprints. Not good enough. Let's campaign for a better one. Why not send away for civil defence leaflets and posters and stickers and then use them to hold meetings at the school? So that's how I perceived this booklet. Urging parents to, and I mean this in a nice way, make a nuisance of themselves to get involved at the school, to badger and nag and campaign for it to have better fallout shelter protection. And of course that goes hand in hand with civil defence education. The booklet reminds us there's no point in having a great fallout shelter if the kids and the school staff aren't well drilled in civil defence methods and know what to do and where to go and what will be required of them after the siren sounds. So let's open the booklet and we will leaf through it together. As always, I will be scanning and uploading the booklet to my Patreon page, so if you're a member, you can read the whole thing there. There are also little illustrations throughout, um, just little sketches, but of course each one tells a story. For example, there's a drawing of a civil defence volunteer. Now, picture a civil defence volunteer in the 1960s. You've probably pictured a man. A middle-aged man. A middle-aged man who is used to authority, who feels it's his duty to get involved. So it's a middle-aged man who is perhaps a bit bossy, a bit gruff, a bit no-nonsense, who knows what's best. Probably a man who has seen service in the war. Well, the picture here is of probably the opposite of that. It's of a gentle, smiling young girl. It looks as though she's actually a nurse, wearing a nurse's uniform. And she is looking over her shoulder at the reader and smiling. And the only indication that she represents civil defence and is not a vision of an angelic nurse is that she's wearing a civil defence armband. So they're telling us there, or suggesting to us, that Civil defence isn't all grumpy blokes, it's gentle, pretty, smiling women. It's inviting and warm and welcoming. Because that is, of course, the aim of this booklet. Come in, parents. Get involved, parents. Turn up to a local civil defence meeting at the school and you'll be greeted by Florence Nightingale, not knocked into shape by Captain Mannering. Opening the booklet, we see that it starts very stridently, warning the reader, who, remember, is a parent of a school-aged child, probably, 
that American schools are not prepared for disaster, whether it be nuclear or natural. Quote, The picture of school civil defence is a dismal one, even frightening when one thinks of the millions of children with little or no protection. It is estimated America endures 40 disasters per day. So that's 12,000 a year. Hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires, volcanic eruptions, landslides and blizzards, plus man-made things like industrial fires and explosions and major road accidents. Now, that's quite overwhelming. How do you prepare America's schools to cope with 12,000 disasters a year? And that's before we've even mentioned nuclear war, of course. Well, the booklet realises it's impossible to cover all of that threat, and so it tells us we will focus on one type of disaster, the big one, the worst one, nuclear war. And by preparing the schools for nuclear war, we can also protect the schools from the other disasters. So aim for the big guy, the nuclear holocaust, and you will Secure yourself against most of the little guys, too. Now, I know I kicked off the podcast by saying this booklet is trying to portray civil defence as welcoming. And yet, here we are, starting with a, a bullish tone, listing all the horrors that could happen to your kid at school. Well, there's no point in civil defence being accessible, if no one feels threatened and therefore feels compelled to get involved. So the two things have to coexist. The sense of fear and the sense of civil defence being approachable and welcoming and open to you. We have to have terror alongside inclusion and approachability. Be afraid but then do something about it. That's the message here. So we have scared the parents then at the beginning. You send little Johnny off to school each day, but is the school safe if the worst should happen? What if one of these 12,000 annual American disasters hits? Sure, but this booklet is focusing on one nuclear attack, and so it neatly takes the parent back into the land of wholesomeness and helpfulness by pinning the blame for any such nuclear attack on foreigners, other people. It will be them who start it. They are the ones who launch the attack, not Americans. It won't be an American horror, an American forest fire, an American tanker explosion, or an American tornado that gets your kid. If it's a nuclear attack, it will be a foreign Kami launched one. If it happens, it will be done by others. It will be their fault. And why might it happen? Well, the booklet blames, yes, foreigners, other people. Here's a quote where all the instability of the world in the 60s is pinned on developing nations. In an uneasy world, torn by wide ideological differences and aggravated by a population explosion, chronic undernutrition and increasing demands from underdeveloped nations, 
the pressures of the moment could cause otherwise rational men to resort to irrational action. So we are shifting the blame onto foreign countries. And that surely allows the parents of American kids to perhaps feel righteous and wholesome and on the side of good. And in order to uphold the good, to reinforce your sense that you are good and that good is sturdy and right and will prevail, you should get involved in civil defence work. This line of thinking reminds me of learning about the Protestant work ethic at university. Thinking there is that if you are a good Protestant, then you will work hard and be disciplined. That is how you show others and reinforce to yourself that you are one of the good guys, that you are chosen to be saved. I was brought up as a Catholic, um, except on Saturdays when I was handed over to my big Protestant dad. And Catholics believe that you do good works in order to earn salvation. But the Protestant thinking is that you do good works and hard work to show that you already possess it. So that's how I see civil defence in this context. America is saying, we are the good guys here. We all know it. We don't need to earn it. We have it just by being born American. But it must be continuously reinforced. Don't take it for granted. Strengthen it and demonstrate it by doing civil defence work. So we have set the scene in this booklet by portraying American kids as little vulnerable innocents, the children of the righteous, and the rest of the world being hungry and aggravating and demanding and overpopulated and causing a lot of instability. Having hit the parents with that, and with the threat of 12,000 annual American disasters, the booklet then swoops in with the classic position dished out by government civil defence. Ah, but don't worry, there is lots that you can do to make it better. It quotes some studies, Department of Defence studies, naturally, which suggest nuclear war is totally survivable and that 90% of America's land may not even be damaged, quote, under certain conditions. Well, that's a bit of a bland phrase, isn't it? Under certain conditions? That could cover anything. That could cover conditions where nuclear attack is launched by a church mouse using nukes made of candy floss and butter. The booklet also says there will be many survivors and much of the land untouched. And so these survivors will need fallout shelters in which they can hunker down until the radiation deteriorates and normal life can just spring back to where it was before. So, and this is the main argument of the booklet, let's build loads of fallout shelters, in schools specifically, and reinforce and properly stock the ones we already have. I'll quote here, Survival is possible. Although devastation from a nuclear attack could be great, the nation would not be totally destroyed. Persons very close to the point of detonation would be lost. But beyond the total destruction zone, chances for survival would improve markedly with every mile of intervening distance. 
However, the millions of people who would survive the initial effects would be exposed to the effects of radioactive fallout. This is where the civil defence programme becomes essential. The goal of civil defence is to assure that those who survive the initial effects will also survive the hazard of radioactive fallout. That's the end of the quote there. We see lots of gentle language, lots of skipping the horror, dodging the detail. For example, referring to the initial effects of the explosion without giving us any gruesome detail about what those effects would be. And those who die, well, they don't use the word die, they use the word lost. The booklet then tries to romanticise the whole notion of civil defence by linking it to America's past and its famous pioneer spirit. Those who pushed out west in the old days have passed tales down the generations of how they banded together to protect themselves and their livestock and settlements from, quote, hostile persons and the destructive forces of nature. The booklet says... The same principle applies in nuclear war. We must all work together to protect ourselves. Except now, we're not protecting a farm or a village or a wagon train, but an entire nation. Quote, The principle is old. Self-help and mutual aid to protect against disaster or to recover from it. The name is new. Civil defence. The danger is new. Nuclear disaster. So the booklet has set out its argument. It opened by trying to suggest that the little kids are in danger when they're off at school. It has tried to soften our perception of a nuclear attack, implying it will be survivable and perhaps not too bad. And it has thrown in a red bloody dash of good old pioneer spirit. The implication being that Previous generations were tough and hardy. Are you lot then a bunch of softies? A bunch of crybabies? There is a problem here, so what are you, mum and dad, going to do about it? The answer is, make sure your school has a good fallout shelter, with good supplies in it and good people in charge who know their civil defence drills and who believe in civil defence. The booklet tells us that President Kennedy first announced a mass programme for building fallout shelters back in May 1961. So let's get into the newspaper archives and see what he said. The New York Times covers the speech with the headline, Kennedy to build civilian defence. And then the subheading caught my eye, gives pledge to governors and eats fallout biscuit. The story begins, President Kennedy nibbled a fallout biscuit today and promised to have a new and strengthened civil defence programme ready in a month. If you're wondering why biscuits are featuring so prominently in this story, it's because, as you know I'm sure, American public fallout shelters were stocked with supplies, or were supposed to be stocked with supplies. After all, they were intended to receive their inhabitants and shelter them for perhaps as long as two weeks. So the people inside would obviously need bedding, food and water. 
The shelters were often stacked with boxes of crackers or biscuits. Well, President Kennedy's fallout biscuit was presented to him at the White House by the New York Governor Rockefeller, who supported the building of fallout shelters. And he had ensured that the shelter in New York's Capitol building was stocked high with tins of fallout biscuits. And he took a tin of fallout biscuits to a meeting with JFK at the White House. And he dished out his special fallout biscuits to everyone present and told the media that 100 of these little biscuits could sustain someone in a fallout shelter for a day. The article tells us that these particular biscuits were high in protein and vitamins and had been developed specifically for fallout conditions by the National Biscuit Company. Now that's something I love about this topic. The fusion of the the innocent and the wholesome with the ultimate horror. Now, the National Biscuit Company, well, they sound jolly and cheerful. I imagine their factory to look like something from Willy Wonka. And yet, there were people in the biscuit factory working on fallout biscuits, working on keeping you alive throughout the Holocaust. Governor Rockefeller then disclosed that New York State had stockpiled enough of these biscuits in the capital at Albany to keep 1,000 people going for two weeks. There's something quite haunting, of course, about Rockefeller being interested in nuclear war and survival, because his family name is, of course, synonymous with glamour and riches and luxury. So that's another one of those weird juxtapositions we find in this topic. An official from the State Department of Health's Nutrition Bureau was intrigued by these fallout biscuits. And so he decided to try and live on them, and only them, for two weeks. Just as people would be required to do after a nuclear war in the shelters. Dr John H. Brow had 25 crackers for breakfast, 25 for lunch, and then he had a luxurious dinner of 50 crackers. He told the press, I tell you quite frankly, I was happy to finish. He says the experiment may have been easier for him, as he was once a Japanese prisoner of war for three and a half years, and was forced to live on barley, soybeans, and an occasional vegetable. He said, compared with that, the crackers were a breeze. So let's get back to Kennedy's speech. In May 1961, he said there would be more funds available to identify suitable shelter space in public buildings, and then of course to build and stock the shelters. This would be costly, he said, but he likened it to insurance, and insurance isn't free. He called it survival insurance. The idea was that America would deter a nuclear attack through the size and force of its nuclear arsenal, and also through certainty that they would retaliate and destroy the enemy. But, if deterrence fails, then why not have a bit of survival insurance? Hope you never have to use it, but you may as well have it just in case. After all, just because you buy home insurance... It doesn't mean you want or 
expect your house to burn down. But you still buy it though, don't you? It's notable now that the emphasis here was on public shelters. Previously, there had been a shelter craze where Americans were encouraged to build their own. And as you've discussed before, and as I discuss in my book, that opened a horrible can of worms. It raised the awful question of, what do you do about your friends and neighbours? If you've built yourself a private shelter, but no one else around you has, will you have the guts to ignore them when they plead for entry as the sirens start to wail? What if these friends and neighbours turn desperate and violent and try to fight their way in? This is America, so you may have a gun. Will you then shoot your friends and neighbours in order to keep you and your family and your shelter safe? This topic, of course, has been covered famously in two very different ways by the Twilight Zone during the Cold War in their great episode, The Shelter, and also by The Simpsons after the Cold War when Ned Flanders allows everyone in Springfield into his bomb shelter with the results that there is no room for Ned. The question of building your own private shelter also brought up issues of class and money. A private shelter is expensive, of course, but it also needs space. You need a big garden or a big basement to build it in. So what if you can't afford it? Or what if you live in a flat or a trailer or something? And you get no garden, no basement, no money. Ugly questions of money and violence and division and inequality were dragged up by the drive for private shelters. As well as plain old anxiety. The government are telling me I need this thing, but I can't afford this thing. So the Kennedy administration wisely flipped the discussion to public shelters. Let's focus on them instead. You'll find them in the basements of public buildings, or in a factory, or in a school, for example. And in these public shelters, anyone can run in. First come, first served. Although, of course, the school shelters would be primarily for the school children and staff. But there's at least equality there. You're not going to be barred from it because you can't afford it, or because you don't have a nice garden. And so it muffles a lot of the hideous questions about would you gun down your friends and neighbours? But of course there was still plenty to criticise about the public shelter campaign. For a start, the shelters would mainly be in cities, in offices, apartment blocks, government buildings, etc. And we're talking about the 60s here where lots of women still worked at home as housewives. So where is their protection? What about the kids? During the day, they're not hanging about downtown, they're in school. So the public shelters, had they been used in the cities, might have received just loads of men in suits. But it's not so great for the women and children. Which brings us back to our topic, beefing up civil defence in schools. I said earlier that the booklet, perhaps downplayed the horror of nuclear war by using euphemisms such as saying people would be lost, for example, and also makes a big deal of how it is survival. 
Well, here the booklet gets a little bit bolder. Here, the booklet begins to face up to some of the grim facts, and it admits, for the first time, that yes, millions would indeed die. But they make it instantly clear that they are only talking of those in cities and target areas. And they are doing that, stressing the horror of the city, in order to suggest that the suburban and rural areas, by contrast, would have a a comparatively easy time. An easy time, as long as they have access to fallout shelters. The idea of the fallout shelter was a great get-out clause for civil defence planners, who, of course, were used to taking a lot of ridicule. You could say to them, you're so naive, you're such a fool to think you can protect us from nuclear blast, the heat flash, the firestorm. Well, now they could shrug and say, I'm not claiming that at all. We're talking about fallout shelters. We're talking about saving the survivors. We're talking about those who were untouched by the firestorm, the heat flash, the blast. No one's claiming to have a magic wand that can save them. And a fallout shelter scheme also gave civil defence workers nice, tangible things to do. Things which are obvious and concrete and measurable. They could get maps out and strut the streets, identifying suitable buildings and basements. They could put signs up, they could get supplies in, beds, biscuits, water. They could draw up rules and plans so that public buildings had to have shelter space built in. So the shelter programme lets them play with maps, papers, signs, supplies, obvious stuff which shows the civil defence planners are earning their money and deserving, therefore, of more funding. Look, Americans, no need to feel hopeless and defeatist. We can save you. Look, government, dishing out the grants and the budgets. We are very busy. Look, Russia, we are protecting our people. We are active in civil defence, so don't try any nonsense on us. Building shelters, measuring shelters, constructing shelters, assessing shelters kept them busy. And you might be tempted to call it busy work. As in, keeping occupied and therefore keeping themselves distracted. It's a way of avoiding having to stop, lay down your tools and confront the big issues. The booklet now turns to the practical details of fallout shelters. It tells us there are two ways to seek shelter from fallout. One is via barrier shielding, which is when your fallout shelter puts lots of mass between you and the source of the radiation. So the walls of the shelter will be lined and packed with with stuff, with material, as we see in Protect and Survive, when the family put heavy furniture and sandbags against the walls and then pile mattresses and boxes of books and bags of clothes onto the sloping door of their inner core. That's barrier shielding. The other method is geometric shielding, which is when the shelter is able to put lots of space between you and the radiation. So this will be a shelter deep underground or in a basement, for example, as opposed to something scooped out in the garden or as with Protect and Survive, a room in the ground floor of your house. 
although Protect and Survive does take geometric shielding into account when it recommends that your fallout room should be the room furthest from any outside walls. Get as much space as you can between you and it. So these two things will vary the so-called protection factor of your shelter. The better the shelter, the higher its protection factor, or PF. So if you are outside and unprotected after the blast, you would receive 40 times more radiation than someone in a shelter with a PF of 40. So again, that creates more work for the civil defence lads. Dashing around with clipboards and calculators, assessing the protection factor of all these shelters. The booklet um, is making a real sales pitch here, says, By planning and controlling the barrier and geometric shielding between the source of the radiation and the sheltered enclosure, any desirable PF can be attained. The booklet then offers some diagrams and drawings showing how your school building might increase its PF. It suggests that the PTA may exert pressure for these measures, either to have them built into the pre-existing shelter or to have a shelter built from scratch in any new buildings. So you should make sure, as a concerned and active parent, that the architecture firm chosen has a so-called shelter analyst on the staff who can properly include measures like, for example, putting a brick veneer on the external walls and packing the space between the veneer and the real wall with sand or gravel. You might also build planters around the base of the external walls, sturdy brick ones, and pack them hard with soil and earth. Sure, if you want, you can Stick some pretty plants on top and call it a planter, but we all know its real purpose is to beef up the external walls, just as we see in Protect and Survive. These planters are basically like permanent sandbags against the wall, and they can't be pinched by desperate neighbours when the final days draw near. If you're designing a school building from scratch, Other techniques your shelter analyst might recommend are having smaller windows. When we think of schools and hospitals built in the Victorian era, for example, they all have tall windows because, of course, there was no electric light, so you wanted as much natural light as possible flooding into the room. There's no need for that in the 60s, so you can afford to have smaller windows. That will mean less of the heat flash will intrude into the room, and if the blast does hit, you'll have less flying glass being lanced into the little kids. You could also build the school, or the shelter part, in a depression in the earth, or build a big mound of earth up around it. Or of course, you could put the whole thing underground. Another idea is to nominate the school gymnasium, or cafeteria, or library, as the shelter space, and make sure this particular area is located in the centre of the building, furthest from outside walls, and has no windows. Then, on page 13, the booklet makes its big pitch. Quote, To protect the children, schools need civil defence. It makes four points there. 
for seven hours or longer every school day, the elementary and secondary schools of America house about a quarter of the nation's population. Two, these children and young people in school are amongst the most poorly protected segments of the population. Fortunately, they can be taught survival attitudes and skills. Three, this group is the promise and hope of America's tomorrow. It is the source of our strongest motivation to survive. And four, during school hours, the children are housed in buildings that, however inadequate, may offer the only shelter potential in the community. With understanding leadership, the protection factor in many of these buildings can be noticeably improved. And if schools need civil defence, the booklet then argues that civil defence also needs schools. Specifically, it needs the school buildings, for six reasons. One, in rural areas, for example, the school building might be the only sizeable public building available to the population to seek shelter in. Two, as a town grows, it will naturally need new schools, so school buildings will keep being built over time, and so can have protective features built in. Three, by their nature, schools contain big areas which can be converted into shelter space. We discussed that earlier, uh, basements, gymnasiums, cafeterias, etc. Four, they normally contain useful items already, like medical and food supplies. Five, the staff will normally have at least a basic idea of civil defence and first aid techniques. And six, School boards have an obligation to follow the law and so should be reacting quickly to government directions about shelter and civil defence. But the booklet warns that your child's school building will only be able to become an effective shelter if it meets three tests. The first is very obvious. If it actually has a proper shelter with a PF of at least 40. Secondly, it must have a well-organised disaster plan, setting out what each person must do on hearing the siren. And thirdly, and this is the most uh, controversial one I'd say, you must have a staff and student body who are drilled in their performance when they hear the siren. Now I say this last one is the tricky one, because in the 1960s many pupils, uh, the older ones, rebelled against the concept of civil defence drills. Some refused to participate in them. And others, such as the folk singer Joan Baez, said that she could trace her first rebellion against authority, her first true questioning of whether the adults do indeed know best, back to these civil defence drills at school, where the kids would be crouched and huddled against the wall in the school basement. Of course, it was easier to rebel when the civil defence drills were being done as a statewide or even nationwide scheme. You will find an episode on that in the archive called Operation Alert and the Angry Mothers. If the older kids in the 60s were at risk of rebellion and questioning the value of civil defence drills, then the problem with teaching the younger ones to follow it is that 
they might be too young to appreciate the dangers and to see how serious the matter is. We've talked before about the distribution of dog tags amongst American school children, how this would help identify them, dead or alive, after an attack. Well, there were plenty of reports in the newspapers of some kids swapping them in the school playground or trying to win them as though they were medals to be collected. So it becomes a game. And when you're telling five-year-olds to duck and cover, to run and crouch and hide, again, surely that sounds like a game. So your school could have the best shelter in America. But what if the prospective shelter inhabitants are rebellious, apathetic, or cannot understand its meaning? I remember doing fire drills at school in the 80s and... It was hard enough for the teacher to impress upon children that no, you mustn't dilly-dally to collect your bag or your jacket or your pencil case. Just get up and leave everything and just go. And that leads us to the next section of the booklet, entitled Increasing Public Acceptance of Civil Defence. It seems there are two ways to get the public into civil defence. Two very blunt ways, at least. Through fear or through hope. The first one is obvious, frighten people into building shelters and learning drills, but that means your entire project is negative, based on stoking fear and relying on keeping people afraid. As soon as there's a a lull in nuclear tension, many people will gladly slip back into normal life and normal concerns. The other method is offering hope. You can protect yourself. It's not as bad as Threads says it will be. Don't be such a drama queen. Well, I see two flaws there. One, I believe that's false. And two, if you overplay your hand and stress hope and safety, then maybe you water down the threats and people become all too relaxed about it. So you need to try and reach the Goldilocks zone. The booklet moves on to activism. In order to increase public acceptance of civil defence, to get the kids and the teachers doing their drills, understanding what's required, we must galvanise the parents and the teachers. There are millions of adults across America involved in PTAs, parent-teacher associations. So, should they all start rolling up their sleeves to encourage civil defence in schools? Start holding meetings Get chatting at the school gates, recruit others. Ask the school of a shelter, is it stocked? Does the school hold regular drills? Poke your nose in and ask questions. Send away for civil defence booklets and posters and stickers and give them out to other parents. You could even make the PTA meetings more interesting, it suggests, by holding a nuclear drill in the middle and having all the adults trip down to the shelter. The booklet stresses action over contemplation. Do stuff, American parents. Meet and debate and recruit and do drills and make a nuisance of yourself. Poke your nose into the school affairs. Is this the architect who designs the school shelter? Is he a qualified shelter analyst? Action is what's required. Maybe the thinking there is if you are active and busy, that might help keep apathy at bay but also perhaps keep anxiety at bay. 
Another suggestion offered to provoke activism and involvement is for people to volunteer as school shelter managers. That is, to be in the shelter during and after the nuclear attack. A school shelter would be different from a normal public shelter in that it would require 24-hour close supervision because, obviously, the place would be full of kids. There may also be the possibility of letting the children outside for short bursts of exercise if, of course, local radiation conditions permit it. Again, this will need close supervision. Also, when the radiation decays further, you will need people to escort these children home. If home still exists, obviously. So a school shelter will need plenty of adult volunteers, far more so than a normal shelter would. But the booklet advises that such volunteers should be free of caring responsibilities of their own, so that they would be able to drop everything and attend the shelter in the emergency and care for other people's children. That makes sense, but why would such child-free people be members of the PTA? Well, maybe the suggestion there is that these uh, these pushy parents should go and recruit their maiden aunts, etc., to use a, an outdated term, who don't have kids of their own, and badger them into doing it. That The question of um, escorting the little kids home from school reminded me of the film Ladybug, Ladybug. I've covered it in a previous episode, so you'll find it in the archive. Uh, I believe it's on YouTube, uh, if anyone wants to watch it. It's a black and white film from 1963, based on a real-life incident in California, where the siren sounded at a local school. It was a false alarm, of course, but the staff at the time couldn't know that. So they went into their civil defence drill, and their arrangements were to bundle the kids into the shelter, but those who lived nearby and were close enough to home should immediately leave the school premises and try to get back to mother before the bomb drops. So when we talk about civil defence drills in American schools, it wasn't all duck and cover or run to the basement. Some schools planned to send the kids home, assuming they were close enough, of course. And so this also had to be practised in their drills. How long will it take little Sally and little Jimmy to run home? Can they get there before the flash? Of course, America in the 50s and 60s would have had more than a four-minute warning, so it was feasible for many kids to take their chances and try to get back home. I looked in the newspaper archives for reports of this type of drill, and I found a classic one from May 1960, from a local paper in Binghampton, New York, which presents the whole thing as a grand and jolly adventure. It follows the experience of a cute five-year-old called Nancy Booth. She has long blonde hair, tied in braids, and is wearing a cute gingham dress. She couldn't be more wholesome and American and pretty and angelic looking. There is no sense of threat here at all, not with cute little Nancy. So the paper photographs her as she ducks and covers beneath the school desk with her little pals, but she can't resist peeking out from under the desk at the camera. So there we are. It's being presented as a game. These kids could easily be playing hide and seek. 
In the next photo, we see Nancy and friends being escorted across the street by their teacher. The caption says they are shepherded across Schubert Street. Shepherded. That word, of course, encapsulates tenderness and care and attention and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but maybe even a religious element here. The, the idea of Jesus shepherding lost lambs to safety. In the next photo, Nancy and her teacher, Miss Eve Matties, wave goodbye to one another at the corner. Naturally, both of them are smiling. Certainly, neither of them are screaming, crying, losing their mind, trying to take shelter in Woolworths or British home stores. The final picture of the story is the most saccharine and deceptive of all. Little Nancy has made a home and she runs happily into the outstretched arms of her smiling mother who's waiting for her in the garden. Now, how could civil defence ever hope to be taken seriously if this is how it is portrayed? Running home to mother in a pretty gingham dress. Everyone smiling, everyone waving, everyone being shepherded. Now, I mentioned um, the word shepherding, whether that has a religious hint to it. Maybe I was being a bit... um, reading too much into it, but turning back to the booklet, it ends on a... it ends with a prayer. The chapter, uh, the paragraph is called Beginning With Me, and it's illustrated with a blackboard with a word to the wise written on it. And this is how the booklet concludes. Whoever originated the prayer, God, make this a better world, beginning with me, was a good civil defender at heart. The pioneer... Facing the savage wilderness, looked first to himself and his own resources, put as much security as he could around himself, then made ample precautionary plans with his neighbours. In time of emergency, he stood ready to help himself and to help them. From its beginning, American civil defence has been organised from the grassroots up. It ends with the great threat to our survival is the nuclear weapon. Facing the threat still are men and women standing shoulder to shoulder and determined to survive. So this booklet certainly puts a a nice slant on the thing, suggesting that yes, you can survive it, if only we will all club together, stand together shoulder to shoulder as good honest Americans and do our bit. But it doesn't say how puny we are in the face of the nuclear bomb. Because if it did, then the whole booklet would be useless, of course. Well, that is the end of this episode. A longer episode than usual, um, as an apology, I suppose, for being so quiet over the past month. I apologise particularly to my patrons, and I hope you're glad the podcast is back, and I will be sticking to a more regular schedule. Let me thank my latest patron to join up, Lauren Moppet, and also Sylvia Pizzini. Sylvia has been with me for a while, but I somehow forgot the name earlier. So, Sylvia, thank you. And as of February, I'm recording this on the, let me check the calendar, the 29th of uh, January. 
But as of February, my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, will be on a Kindle deal. Uh, it'll be 99 pence, I believe, for the month of February. And then the paperback will be out in April, early April. You can pre-order that just now, of course, on Amazon or on any of the book websites. So I thank you for listening and again apologise for the, the silence over the past few weeks. I will go now and upload, scan and upload the Civil Defence booklet to my Patreon page and I thank you all for listening.